0: Everyday Eternal Podcast. I'm Matt Pavlik. I'm
1: Jacob Corey. I'm Sean O'Brien, the proud owner of 107
0: Digit And today we're going to be talking about uh, Gen Con. We're going to be talking about the recent uh, Star City Games Baltimore results. We're going to talk about some mid-range. We're going to answer some questions, specifically talking about the, uh, the Star City Games circuit and preparing for... For a Star City Games tournament or another large legacy event, what you should be doing, how you should be doing it, and that
2: you should be eating your vegetables. Let's jump in. Sean, you just recently came back from GenCon. Why don't you Why don't you uh, tell us how uh, the whole experience played out? Right. So, uh, so GenCon, although
1: bereft of vintage and legacy champs this year, uh, still had. On Friday, uh, an 80-person Vintage event, which I believe, barring last year's Vintage Champs and maybe the New York Stack Exchange, should at least be the largest Vintage event uh, in, in the United States this year. Um, so it was fun to see everybody out with real cards. And uh, um, I ended up bringing Blue-White Control with the three Rest in Peace main, Um, a helm to tinker for, a batter skull, a cage, Um, and I ended up squeaking into the top eight, uh, and then I actually defeated the two people who beat me in Swiss to get to the finals of this 80-person tournament, which was a feeder into the Tournament of Jesus, and um, I ended up splitting with him for a number of reasons. One, I didn't think I had a great matchup on the draw against him. He was on uh, Torture Chamber Workshops. Um, B I had a lot of stuff to do Sunday anyway. C, I learned uh, that afternoon that it would actually be a Rochester draft of the eight quote unquote good packs. So, you know, you had to actually get it to you got in the top eight, you actually had to win a die roll, and the pack had to have something valuable. So, like when he said, Hey, here's some cash and the 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 sheet of antiquities, the split for me was a no brainer because the sheet's going to be worth at least, you know, at least $1,000 minimum, even if I want to fire sale it at the con. And what's the chance of pulling anything out of that pack and getting number one on the, the D8 to, you know, be the first guy to get the Rochester draft pick. So all those things together. Well, I think
2: even, I think even if you took the sheet, you are at least guaranteed a workshop, right?
1: Well, technically, yes, there was a workshop on that sheet. The other thing was is that it, we found out it was the God sheet. So it has shop. Cannelabra, winter factory hercules uh etc cetera, etc cetera. like the other sheet is a fucking maxi pad it has like gay as avenger and crumble are like its best cards so um i got it was the good sheet once i figured out it was a good sheet and he and adrian was really psyched about playing um and he now made... is this is
2: this the same adrian from the uh nyse that uh kind of revolutionized the aggro shop uh archetype with his experimental, and maybe not quite so experimental, but he certainly had um, Genesis Chamber in it, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know if he played that one at... um, Let's see. Yeah, it is Adrian Becker. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he was also the one to play it there. The deck itself is actually old. Um, The Genesis Chamber deck uh, back maybe two years ago, if you search TC decks, you can find old versions of it. But, um, you know, the updating of that deck with some of the newer printings in the last year or two has made it a lot better. Like the old version used to play uh, the Murr who would return himself from your graveyard if you had a copy of that Murr in play.
2: Oh, the Moonlit Murr or something like that? Moon Vessel ver- Murr? He, I'm going to,
1: you know, all the fucking Murrs kind of blend together to me. I think that's, you know, they're all, I think that's kind of their goal is to just be unseen.
2: Except the Battle Ball. ball. Yeah, except the I Battle Ball. the Battle yeah.
1: Ball. Murr Servitor is the one I'm referring to. So. Um, and it says at the beginning of your upkeep if Servitor is on the battlefield each player returns all cards Mur Servitor from his graveyard to the battlefield so the original version of the Genesis chamber deck or the torture chamber shops deck was you had one of those guys out and you could skull clamp another couple of them and they would all come back and you'd have tokens so um, he was a little bit slower this one uses signal pests and is really trying to start attacking a lot quicker um, and the other introduction was Steel Overseer which is like obviously insane once you get a few tokens out uh, you're putting one one counters on a horde of tokens and it starts to get sick um, and maybe another slight bump and this isn't that relevant but the fact that you can chain cradles now is pretty ridiculous with that deck
2: yeah that's it that seems like really good at uh, essentially such gives you to learn Academy yeah yeah second through fourth or fifth if you're playing four cradles
1: so anyway all those things combined uh, you know I you know, I thought, all right, well, this is a pretty good, pretty good split, and um, and he again, he was super excited about playing in that tournament. So, more power to him. I don't know how he ended up doing, but um, I know they didn't open Dick out of the packs. So, I felt fucking vindicated once once I realized the best card they pulled was out of the Zendikar pack so, um
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your deck, um, the blue white control.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so here, my plan was as follows: um, I would play sort of a creature heavy blue-white control deck, so I ran three clicks, um, two Mind Sensors, and a trinket Mage, which is different than some of the European lists I looked at afterwards who were actually playing like two Helm of Obedience and really focusing on the Rest in Peace combo. I played three Rest in Peace, one Cage, I played a Batterskull main, and I played uh, a Digger's Cage main. So I felt like my game one against Dredge was super strong, and last year at Gen Con at Vintage champs there was a lot of dredge so i wanted to play a deck that had good game game one against dredge and this deck definitely has that um the other thing that i thought was all right well i want to be able to take advantage i have a lot of dead cards versus shops i mean unless i'm going to slam the helm of obedience rest in peace in many cases it's just a brick against shops. so uh i hedged my sideboard and put four stoneforge mystics and a jit to go with my main deck batter skull so um the Stoneforge Mystic plan against Shops basically worked every time. I didn't completely brick my draw. and ended up with like an opening hand of Batterskull brick, 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 uh, which happened to me in the last round of the Swiss. I just I had terrible, terrible hands, which happens in minutes. It's fine, but without four Brainstorms to nug your batter Skull back in your deck, sometimes it can be awkward. Um, so my sideboard was to hedge against Shops and then to have uh, even more game against... Burning Oath, which I thought would be out in force, and I actually ended up playing against it twice in Swift. So I had three Meddling Mages. My sideboard is as follows. Four Stoneforge, three Meddling Mage, two Flusterstorm, two Disenchant, another Swords to Plowshares, a Jit, a Cage, and a Hercules Recall. So I can board in a good number of cards against Shops. Uh, I should be an almost auto-win game one against Dredge, although things happen with that day. Uh, I could go aggro with Click if I needed to. Um... I could also tinker up Skull against the Young Pyromancer decks, and, you know, they can make a bunch of dudes, but 4-4 Lifelink guy, you know, they have a really tough time pushing through that. I played maybe six or seven games the night before practice against uh, Jack Caldwell, who's a really good player, and he was there playing the Young Pyromancer list, and he didn't win a game, so I felt good against that deck as well. So, um, and then throughout the day, my matchups, first round I played Burning Tendrils, and, um, I think if, if you've got experience against that deck or or playing it quite a bit, you will find that I think that deck loses half the time to errors by the pilot. I think that deck's super powerful, but um, A, you can get some shaky draws where you get too many oaths, or B, uh, the pilot just makes a bad error. So uh, in this case, game one, or uh, sorry, game two he brews up a giant Yogmoth will. Hercules himself because he runs out of mana, looks down, casts Yogmoth will, and points to the Hercules recall, and I point to my Graph Digger's cage, and which had been out since turn one, and say Yogmoth will resolves, and so that was kind of a blowout. And then game three, ah. <laughs> that's that's pretty sweet. And then meddling mage blows that deck out pretty hard uh, if I can land it. You know, meddling mage on Burning Wish. Well, meddling mage on Oath is is number one, if you don't have a way to deal with a uh, meddling mage on Burning Wish is, is almost a hard lock, and then maybe meddling mage on Grizzlebrand or meddling mage on Mind's Desire or Demonic Tutor.
2: Yeah, my experience against that deck at uh, Bizarre Moxon earlier this year was I got down to Graftigger's cage, but my opponent had the Ritual Ritual Grizzlebrand draw, and I ended up losing to the 7-7 bargain. I lost game one,
1: round one, game one. I blew him out with Fluster Storm and then I brick about three draws, and he just goes Ritual, Ritual, Tap, Mana Vault, Grizzlebrand, and I was like, "Wow, that's tough, tough for me." Yeah, so that it can come out of nowhere and beat you. Your cage isn't safe. Some of them run Repeal, some of them run oh, hurt- well, they all run Hurlps. But um, round two, I played against more of a traditional Jace control deck, and Mind Sensor was just a fucking blowout um, in pretty much in both games. You know, it was it was typical blue blue matchup where I, I think I had the better counter spell in each counter fight, you know, ending in a couple of counter fights over like Jace with a fluster storm and all he had left was you know, the wrong counter spell basically. Um but but Mind Sensor there was clutch and it was a blowout on all of his tutors. Uh game or round three, I believe it was, I played against Cavern Shops. Um game uh game one was tight but I, I i drag it out game two i think i lose to up to a fast tangle wire game three stoneforge i have the mox land stoneforge hand and then i meddling mage uh all the things he's named with his caverns so he named worm so i meddling mage worm coil engine um and batter just the reason i like batter skull against shops is it's it's fast you know if you can it trades favorably with almost everything except for like a worm coil engine and then it's You know, it's just a faster clock. They tend to to do some damage to themselves as well, so... Um, Anyway, and then uh, round four, Burning Tendrils again. Uh, Actually, against Nick Koss, who's organizing Eternal Weekend. Um, Game one, he has a deck reg error. So again, Burning Tendrils loses to itself. He has Yogmoth Wills in his main deck. He can't find it when he goes to Burning Wish. And uh, game two, I actually Flusterstorm, Duress, hoping to bluff. I kind of kept a week six, and he gets there. Game three, Meddling Mage was naming Oath, Burning Wish, and Grizzlebrand. <laughs> I drew all three Meddling Mages, and it's just a blowout against that deck. So, I don't know if they have access to Pyroclasm, but it doesn't matter. If you've named Burning Wish, they can't get it. So, uh, I played round five. I played against our competing podcast on Eternal Central. One of the Moe's brothers playing uh, some kind of mono-blue uh, lesbian stage Dark Depths deck, which was pretty cool. Um, so he's using intuition he's using the snapcaster intuition accumulated knowledge engine to draw out all the counter spells printed by man and God and then you know using all those soft tutors to tutor into the stage depths combo which was pretty cool but Aven mind sensor versus intuition is uh a dry glass covered fist and um so that kind of blew that deck out and he actually got the combo. Game three, I believe, he got Merit Lage out, but I had gotten kind of ahead with a, again, with a batter skull. I was so far ahead in life that he actually couldn't profitably attack with a twenty twenty. So I pulled that one out, and then I lose to the Bizarre Moxon winning Bug Deck in round six. Just got, got rest in peace game one, and I lost to Norwood Ranger and Forest Bear. Game two, I blow him out with Stoneforge Mystic. In game three, he just gets a great draw. I don't get a great draw. He played well and didn't make any mistakes. And, uh just blows me out with like Snapcasters into Counterspells and just pressures me out of the game. So then the last round, I think we can draw in, but my opponent, who's, who was a gentleman, um, playing like 12-sphere, no cavern shops, metalworker shops, uh, says he wants to play because he wants the number one seed, which is fu- perfectly fine. You're on a workshop deck. You definitely want it. And I just get some bad mana hands. I didn't really get into game one at all. Game two, I kind of stabilize. I got a better skull down. I have an untapped germ. He's got no cards in hand. And he top deck's duplicate for lethal. So, and, you know, it's was, it was fine. And he was he was apologetic about playing it out, knowing he could draw us in. And I, I, you know, I thought to myself, I would do the same thing. It's shops. You know, you want to, he was in no matter, he was in win or lose. So why not try to get the best seed with a shop deck? Um, and unfortunately, the top eight, I played against him as the eight seed, and I knocked him right back out. So, uh, again, you know, the Stoneforge Mystic plan was, was on point. Game one, I got him with a fast Tinker. I kept a hand with Mystical, Rest in Peace, and a lot of Artifact Mana, which my deck runs. And I was just able to power out Tinker and, uh, into Helm, and he just couldn't, he wasn't playing Revokers, and he just couldn't do anything about it. Um, and then I beat the bug player in the top four who had played really tight all day. I could, I think he was just getting tired. Um, we're in the second game, I believe. He has Lotus, Emerald. one. He's a little land type, but he has Lotus, Emerald, and a land. And I cast Meddling Mage. He asked the judge some question, looks at metal Mage again, asks the judge. Says, sack Lotus for green, green, green. I say, Sure. I said, "Is my was my mage resolve? He said, "Yeah, mage resolves. And I say, "Abrupt decay." And he goes, "Oh, okay." So I know he fucked up. He he thought of maybe it was a trigger or something that he'd have an opportunity to play the abrupt decay on the mage, which he never got. And then Batterskull just went all the way. But you know, I just think it was an error. He was he was probably exhausted at that point. So. And it's hard to beat the same deck twice. I'm sure you guys have experienced this before. You beat some guy in the Swiss, and then you got to play him again in the top eight, and he needs to get you back. So um, that happened. But we can post the list in the show notes. But um, I think it's a good list. You know, I don't think it's great. I played three mana drains. just seemed like all day I struggled to find stuff to drain into. So, you know, maybe it could have been, like, two drains and a spell pierce, or two drains, and go up to two Fluster storm main. Um... Something like that. I, I might have changed that. But the core of the deck uh, worked really well for me. And it, and and this, the kicker was I didn't actually play against Dredge all day, which should have been my best matchup. So at the end of the day, I got a uncut sheet of Antiquities. And uh, actually, the, my top eight opponent who I beat, the, the fine German man who beat me in, a, in the last round of Swiss, ended up taking it home because he had the sickest Workshop deck. I've ever seen in my life and he actually worships Mishra and his workshop and I'm pretty sure at this at the time that this podcast is being recorded on the 27th of August I am fairly certain he has it fucking framed and it is like above his bed somewhere in fucking Germany and he is sound or happily asleep or awake but uh he was happy to take it home and he gave me pretty fair value for it and uh, I was able to just take that money and go buy more shit so. Which is very the other nice. half of Gen Con, which is buying shit. So,
2: <clears throat> well, very nice. Congratulations on your tournament. Sounds like uh, you had a lot of fun and a lot of tough matches as well.
1: Yeah, it was good. I mean, I, I got you know better lucky than good. I mean, um, Nick Cost probably should have had me, um, but again, it's burning tendrils. Um, so I actually walked away after the Swiss. I was like, Jack and I were like, "Well, fuck it, this sucks. Let's go, go get some fucking beers." Like we both, we, we figured we like we'd be like nine ten. But Jack's like, oh, let's go back and see if we get some M14 packs to set on fire or rip apart or fucking throw around the streets of Indianapolis. And sure enough, we walk back and I'm eight and he's nine. So,
2: Oh, yeah, nice breaks, Sean.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I lost to the, you know, like I said, my two losses were to two guys who, who top eighted. So I guess I did have decent breakers. But Anyway, it was fun. And then Gen Con, the dealer room is just a fucking absolute orgy of, I, it's just insane. Like, it's just the most insane collection of magic cards really anywhere in the world uh, at any given time. And having gone to Bazaar now, and you've gone as well, which is kind of a one-vendor show, this blows it all away. You know, Gen Con is supreme as far as selection, being able to play vendors off each other. Uh, if you're down to just have a mission to get, you know, one fucking particular card or a set of something, uh, you're you're paying a little bit to get there, obviously, but, you know, you're having fun while you're there at the convention, hanging out, drinking, eating, um, the dealer room itself at the end of the day, if you have cash, you can get the about the best deals I think you can get on cards, especially on sunday so
0: I really wanted to go, but unfortunately could not attend
2: yeah i 'll definitely have to plan for it in uh in future years once i uh once I actually save up some vacation uh bizarre Moxon really ate away all those vacation days so gen con next year that 's the plan yeah it's a blast. Hey, Matt, we had a uh, Star City event this past weekend, right? So I heard. So
0: it turns out it was actually hosted in Baltimore, which is somewhere on the east coast of the United States, I've heard. So it looks like the results were kind of expected. Most of the top 16 is all decks that we'd expect to see. So second place, Punishing John, Death and Taxes, again, it's a real thing. Stop telling us it's not. Shardless Bug... Miracles, Omnitel, Epic Storm. Notice that instead of Ant. Uh, there's actually a Reanimator deck as well, Affinity. However, first place, Painter. Mono Red Painter. Running six main deck Blood Moons, and some Simian Spirit Guides, and some Imperial Recruiters, and a Goblin Welder, and. And six Red Elemental Blasts, or Pyro Blasts as well. It's running a whole cup of I told you so because Blood Moon is good.
2: Blood Moon and Red Blast both are really, really good when uh, your expected metagame is some percentage of blue decks. This is true. I got a chance to uh, check out some of the matches on Sunday um, on camera, and it was. Uh, There's a couple of games that are really intense. Um, for instance, against Death and Taxes. Uh, I think it was round 8 or 9. Um, I believe the pilot, uh, Jonathan Suarez, um, was up against Travis Cowley. And uh, you looked at the board and it was it was a mess. I mean, there was Ensnaring Bridge on one side, and Mother of Runes with Revoker naming Grindstone on the other side, and uh, Mirren Crusaders, and a bunch of rishdon ports. and It was a mess. Um, that game actually was won by Death and Taxes on, off a timely Wisp on the bridge um, to be able to Alpha Strike. But uh, it was definitely interesting. A lot of uh, neat play back and forth going uh, between the two players. So definitely recommend going to the archives and checking those games out.
0: I think the deck has a lot of play. I think, like we said, Blood Moon, as we've been saying for the past, you know, three or four months or however we've been doing this podcast, is, you know, Blood Moon's good. And being able to reliably turn one Blood Moon is pretty darn good. Being able to also quote-unquote monkey blast someone with a painter servant down is pretty darn good. So, you're tapped out. Your opponent thinks it's all good. They can play whatever they want and you w- oops, the simian spirit guide and then blast them.
1: Pretty good.
0: You know, what's interesting is he beat a deck with
1: you know, we talk about blood Moon's utility, but the deck he plays against has like nine or 10 planes, right? And it's still good. Yeah he beats, in the top eight, he beats
2: a Death and Taxes deck, right? And it's like... I think, um, that wasn't in his bracket. No, he he didn't end up playing. Yeah, he ended up playing it in, going into top eight, and then um, managed to play against uh, Bug in the top four, and I believe he beats... Punishing John. Yeah. In the finals, yeah. So, a bunch of three-color decks. Okay. So, I mean, because I think Death and Taxes
1: has a decent matchup against that, between Revoker and uh, 9 basic.
0: Yeah, I mean, but the bug deck just l- literally weeps. I mean, Blood Moon is game over. That's the thing. The bug deck, I mean, most of them weren't running Force Wills. Now it seems like some of them are running Force Wills again. You know, in this particular sl- there's actually no Thoughtseize. So, I mean, you're actually just hoping your Hymn to Torox kind of, kind of hit their Blood Moons. But, I mean, this bug has no answer to this card. Game over, they lose. That's it, no more. They are dead. Yeah,
2: yeah. They have to have, they have to have at least a deathrite shaman out and play, and hopefully some fetchlands in the graveyard. Otherwise, they don't stand a chance being able to uh, remove that blood moon.
0: And I mean, I was, uh, I was at a 100 person uh, event on Sunday, just this past Sunday, and there were a lot of times where I was watching players say like miracles, just putting down the blood moon against say Jund or Bug, and just that was it. Nail in the coffin.
2: Yeah. I think uh, one interesting point Matt, you alluded to earlier, um, there are three epic storm decks in this uh, top 16 of the event, and I think that's, uh, that's a very telling sign of where the state of a metagame is. Um, now, granted, in the northeast, um, there are a lot more uh, proficient storm pilots, and uh, most of them tend to gravitate towards epic storm, which rewards type play and, and format knowledge. But um, I think the speed of of the Epic Storm deck really plays into how well it did at this event.
0: I mean, recall, listeners, that uh, the Ad Nauseam Tendrils decks, whether or not they're running the red or just straight blue-black, I mean, the easiest kill that I've seen, at least in the past couple of months that I've been playing against these ant decks, most of the time it's just easier to just always go for Passing Flames. It's. It seems to be, I mean, yes, okay, if there's a Deathrite Shaman, whatever. Most of the time, you just go straight to Past and Flames, you cycle through your rituals again, you tutor, and you win. And it's not bad. However, I mean, if everybody's bringing, say, Rest in Peace to the table, or what have you, that's going to be a bit of a problem.
2: Yeah. Um, and the attack is certainly a lot slower where Rest in Peace, or even threat Shaman, become a uh, thing to worry about. Sean?
1: Well... Greg Mitchell moved, so there's no more Storm at my store, so I'm not going to worry about it.
2: Back to Junk, huh?
1: Yeah, I was too lazy to take apart my Legacy deck from Gen Con, so I played Junk this past week and uh, stumbled into the... I, stumbled, I think I stumbled into the top eight and got blown out. No, I actually made money, I think. I, I stumbled into the top eight, and then my uh, my Junk hex Hexteps opponent just got bricky, crappy draws and uh you know you sometimes you just get vampire Hex mage and it's just like bad Elvish archer and um so he bricked on a lot of his draws and i was actually able to win money with basically internet junk that i had brought to legacy i think the only thing that was sexy about it was uh uh my beta duels maybe or and then uh, i don't know i ran a thron main thinking maybe a lot of people would be on control but um but yeah we we don't have a huge amount of storm at at the store you know we get 20 25 people uh storm's pretty much all gone we get we have agro loam goblins a couple people on miracles uh and then a bunch of grindy mid-range as the as the kids say these days kind of decks so i got blown out i actually got blown out by deeds uh and plague spitter in the third round i thought i was
2: Holy crap, I haven't seen that card since like two thousand six in Legacy.
1: Yeah, I posted a picture of Plague Spitter on our uh, Atlanta Yogmoths uh, vintage cup Facebook page, or my cat did actually, but um, <laughs> the the we were talking about playmats for season two. The the prize for season one is a force of will playmat, so the season two prize is gonna be like an aggro, a like, iconic aggro card on a playmat. We're gonna do control aggro Combo and rotate the playmats through seasons. So uh, people were throwing out just bad magic art, and I threw Plague Spitter up there. And one of the members of uh, of that group took it to heart, read the card, and was like, "Holy fuck, this thing is a blowout against all these little one toughness, you know, abrupt decay decks. You know, he's a yeah. he's a complete inevitability. If you abrupt decay him, you know, all of your you know stuff dies. But yeah, he's awesome. Plague Spitter. So
2: so Sean, let's say uh, let's say you've got a Star City event this weekend. Or even on the horizon, let's say they're coming in a couple of months. How would you uh, how would you prepare for that event? I mean, what what thought process would you have? Uh, maybe in terms of deck selection or how would you build your sideboard?
1: Well, we have one coming up in Atlanta pretty soon. I think it's in under a month. Um, yeah, you know, I might take something like Jun to a field like this. I mean, I I found most of the the or Death and Taxes, you know, sort of a mid-range deck that isn't awful versus anything, but isn't a spectacular blowout against anything. Um, and sometimes, you know, when the matchup is bad for a Jund deck, you just get there on the back of Random Discard, uh, kind of those blowout draws you can get with it. I think I would probably take something like that. All right, that's if I wanted to actually win. What I'll probably end up taking, uh, now that I have Russian Lords of Shatterskull Pass, is I'll probably take Do Still. What about you, Matt?
0: <clears throat> well, I mean, I really like Junk. I'm still kind of trying to find a build that I really like right now. I was running the Lingering Souls build for, I would say, the last four months, and with the resurgence in the, in the combo decks, Lingering Souls is just really, really bad. I mean, it beats all of your like your Shardless bug matchups and, and your Jund and whatever kind of mid-range deck you're facing. However, it was just super bad. And I'm just wondering, kind of, do I shift to a himtrock build again? Do I put Liliana back in? And I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm still weighing to see what I wanna, what I want to play. But definitely, I definitely want a proactive strategy. I want more threats in my deck, so I don't want to sit there and. I mean, I was trying vampire hexmages for a while, and they were very good when Deathblade was. It was just the meta was just Deathblade for you know two weeks. Hexmage was amazing, but now not so good.
1: What about something like a uh, Bant that gives you sort of a little game against combo, but can still, uh, you know, can still go aggressive off of you know a fast noble hierarch, you know, into yeah. ooze.
0: I was actually talking about this with uh, a random guy emailed me and was we were just kind of chatting back and forth. Um, I think Natural Order Bant, some of you may remember the deck was popular about two to three years ago. I think it's kind of good right now. I think people aren't expecting the Natural Order, especially since I've been playing against Elves a lot more. I hate that card. Just being like, oh, Crater you, brah. I I really don't like it. But just going for Progenitus is really, really good. Nobody's playing Parish anymore. There's no Virtues Ruin. It's not happening. Uh, Grigori Charm is just not blowing out the format. So I would want to play a deck with like, Deathwatch Shaman and Noble Hierarch. Uh, I could play main deck Trigon Predator because, you know, blowing out equipment and enchantments and this and that is pretty good. Also, taking out Shardless Agents after, like, say you, like, attack in for two, you get to blow up their Shardless Agent. Like, that seems good.
1: I love Triangle, man. He's he's a mainstay in Vintage.
0: Yeah, like, and Casalic Pride Mage for blowing up uh, Omniscience. Um, yeah, I mean, turn three Natural Order is... Pretty darn good.
1: So you would play? A, you think you'd play a build with like uh, Knight of the Reliquary, maybe Spell Pierce to take advantage of of wasting people out,
0: or? Yeah, I'd probably play Spell Pierce. I don't know if I'd play Force of Will main because, I mean, I'd have to look at the blue count and kind of, kind of build it. But I mean, I think it would basically be a a Maverick Natural Order Maverick with some blue for you know brainstorm
2: and value and what have you. I think especially in that kind of build um you really play to your strengths by going turn 1 noble hierarchy turn 2 vendilion click turn 3 natural order for Progenitus with um, any number of counter magic as backup and protection.
1: A deck that can run a noble hierarchy out can also usually run days a little better than the decks that can't can't go manadork, you know what I
0: mean? And I know people are people are saying that or a lot of the uh, Maverick decks have switched to Dark Maverick, you know, with Deathrite Shamans instead of Noble Hierarchs. But, I mean, the thing is, now with the pervasiveness of Deathrite Shaman in the format, your Deathrite Shamans may not be active. What if you're on the draw? Like, suddenly now if they hold up their Deathrite Shaman to gank yours, you don't get to accelerate? Whereas if you're just straight up running Noble Hierarch, all of a sudden your, uh, your acceleration is unimpeded. I mean, you could even so, go
1: with a graveyard-free strategy, and then and then board rest in peace. I mean, you'd have oh, to ask exactly. you, and some other really good cards. But
0: you could play Luxon and Smiter instead of Knight of the Reliquary. Like, like that card legitimately seems very good to me. I mean, it's Anti Liliana, which, as you see, the bug decks are starting to pack more and more Lilianas because Liliana is amazing. Um,
2: what else do they have? Uncounterability, like it's darn good. I mean, a 4-4 is just as good against Rug as a uh, Knight of the Royal Quarry. Granted, you won't be able to get Wastelands, but it's large enough to matter, uh, large enough to stop Nimble Mongoose, and you don't have to worry about days or Force of Will.
0: Yeah, like casting that on turn two and just being like, you know, show me your Force of Will so I can laugh at you.
2: Oh, even better if, even better if your opponent tries to counter it anyway, and then you point to the text that says, cannot be countered, thanks for throwing your two cards away. And I just think,
0: like, I think Sean said this somewhere on the forum, I think there's cards like this that have been used in other formats that people just aren't trying because of the fact that, you know, people think, quote-unquote, it's not a Legacy card.
2: Yeah, it has that standard card
0: stigma to it.
2: And maybe we're just not doing the
0: testing because, like, I mean, also, too, the average age of the Legacy player is, you know, the 25 to 40, has responsibilities, job, etc. Like, I know that lately I have not had as much time to play Magic. I don't have, say, three days a week to just sit down and grind games to be like, oh, let's try this card. I just don't have that time. I'm I'm a lot more I've been looking on you know, online, I've been trying it out, you know, talking with my friends, but in terms of actual hard data, I don't have as much of that. So I think maybe that's kind of a problem of the format in general of why we're kind of in this I mean, Carson Cotter wrote an article talking about the quote-unquote triumvirate of, of legacy. Well, is it just the fact that maybe nobody's innovating because of the fact that we're just a collection of people who are kind of maybe at that age where we just don't have the time? Maybe that's why we're stuck in this quagmire of like
2: mid-range, rest in peace,
0: this and that. Who knows?
2: I think that certainly has a lot of merit um, regarding what how the metagame plays out, And I I know a lot of times, especially when it starts to get really combo-heavy, for instance, you saw three Epic Storms in the top 16, you're like, I really want to make sure I beat that, so I'm going to go to the most obvious deck that can beat Storm, which is Rug, and go from there. And then essentially you're stuck in this very closed-loop cycle of uh, switching between mid-range, tempo, and combo. And uh, you really forget about the other powerful decks in the format, for instance, like Painter Grindstone, which actually has a pretty good, decent shot of uh, defeating kind of the, the tempo slash mid uh makeup that we saw recently.
0: Yeah, I think it's just it's about branching out and just seeing, you know, maybe there's a deck that you haven't seen in a while. Like, again, we're just talking about Natural Order Band. Uh, I think also, too, next-level Thresh. Like, having a... Like, Rug is in good colors to deal with a lot of the format. I mean... You know, you've got Lightning Bolt or Punishing Fires, you know, possibility of Counterbalance, Tarmogoyf. Those are all things that I might want to play. Again, but I just don't think, like, I just don't have the time to explore to see if next level Thresh is maybe a good deck in this format.
2: Nick Fit's always always the best choice for uh, when you don't know what else to explore.
1: Yeah, Nick Fit with Plague Spitter.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, oh, my veteran explorers. Oh, so good. They all got aids and died. Oh. I'll oh, the value.
2: Oh, so much. Hold on, I'm gonna search my deck for two, uh, two forests here. I'm gonna cast this prime time. Slam it down. Can't beat it.
1: Yeah, Smiteer is probably a little bit underplayed if there's gonna be a bunch of, uh, I mean, assuming you're playing Smiter, assuming then you're also gonna play Rest in Peace. I think that that hits a good cross section of the format and. Smiter, when you cast him, you get to kind of grasp him in your hand, uh, like a three-year-old grabs like a chicken wing, and you just kind of slam him down on the table sideways, knowing that your opponent really can't do anything about him. It's a gratifying feeling having
0: played him in modern. And to be honest, I may very well end up trying him in junk, because right now, I mean, I'm, I mean, we were talking about this before the cast, but I mean, we did an episode talking about all about combo and you know what combo was trying to do and, you know, what angles to kind of attack to disrupt that strategy. And we were talking about, I mean, eventually we'd like to do an entire episode just on mid-range in legacy at the moment. However, I feel like, you know, junk or bug are are really good color schemes right now. It's just, I mean, obviously I think the shardless strategy has really been explored because of the fact that it has force of will, it has more game-against combo, but I think the black-white-green archetype has quite a bit of game left in it that hasn't been explored just because of the fact that it's maybe not quite as popular, doesn't have Brainstorm, doesn't have Force well
2: Right. Even on that token of uh, odd color combinations in, in Legacy, um, we've seen a little bit of it recently with uh, Patriot uh, Delver showing around. I mean, uh, at the Invitational, um, it did really, really well that weekend. Um, I think maybe a more mid-range approach, not, not so much a Tempo with Stifle and... Uh, Delver of Secrets, but rather uh, going a little bit slower uh, Stone uh, Stoneforge Mystic, Lightning Bolt, Snapcasters, and you can even run Grim Lava Mancers to, to really overwork those mid-range strategies, even a lot of the creature strategies, uh, and we've talked about it a lot before, um, Grim Lava Mancers is a great answer to Deathrite Shaman decks. Um, but I think one of the most important points of that sort of deck is uh, being able to play both lightning bolt and swords of plowshares so you're able to remove both the small creatures as well as the large creatures i was going to just say very similar to
0: the black white green of having you know abrupt decay and swords of plowshares
2: right and naturally being in blue you have a decent shot against most combo decks just on the fact that you have force will and spell pierce um, available for you so that's actually a deck that I'm uh, I'm going to be testing out locally here pretty soon. Um, it is a little slower, and it does take a little bit of adjustment to get used to that playstyle. But I think um, if you're able to anticipate what you're going to be playing against in a tournament, um, having a deck with a lot of options, and uh, a deck that can generally rely more on your player skill rather than the strength of the cards. Now certainly in a deck like that you have powerful cards, but... Um, it's more geared towards like a 50-50 matchup um, where really you're just going to make good tight plays in order to um, turn those tough situations into wins.
1: Death and Taxes plays a lot like that too. You know, it's it's got game against just about everything and if you're really good with the deck and you eke every little bit out of every card in that deck, you know, tapping your vials when you've got nothing to throw down at the end of the turn um, and just playing really tight with that deck, you can... You can win can win a lot of close games with that deck. I, that might be another deck I'd consider taking. I mean, maybe the the cat's out of the bag, and people understand the deck a little bit better now, and they'll know how to attack it a little bit more, but I still think it's a deck that flies under the radar and doesn't get a lot of
0: respect because it's, I don't know, white. Maybe it's reverse racism. I don't know. I mean, Mirren Crusader right now? Hmm. That's pretty much the tits. I mean, I lost to that card when I was playing Junk not too long ago. I mean, I've only got four Swords of Plowshares. You know, I have four Abrupticase as well, but those Abrupticase don't do anything when the Mirror Crusader has a Jitae and is beating my fucking face in. And Mother like, of Runes is a oh, ganking against oh them, all that. Oh, man.
2: This past weekend I played uh, I played a Bug Delver you know, trying to fly on the wing coats of uh, my buddies who have been able to top rate with it repeatedly. And Marin Crusader was the one card I couldn't actually beat with any single card in my 75. It was very, very frustrating to see that card cast. It even viled in from uh, Defentax's deck. And it was. It really got me thinking, man, I need more Lilianas in my deck. There's just no way to beat it otherwise.
0: Well, I think this might be a time for Virtue's Ruin. I mean, it's always a good time for Virtue's Ruin. This is true. Portal anything. Seems yeah. good. Or my signed dystopias. This is true. Dystopia is a one. So, I think we're going to move on to... Actually, there was a question from our Facebook page talking about how does one prepare for a tournament. So, is, do we want to move on to that?
1: A uh, hearty breakfast?
2: Not just that. Bring 75 cards that you can play with? Um, <clears throat> Understand... Now, Understand
1: legacy before you waste $40. I mean, if you don't know what a triggered ability is, an activated ability is, a mana ability is, what priority is, don't waste
0: $40. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with not knowing what those things are. It's just, you know, learn them beforehand before you go to a tournament. So let's start off with what you could first do before deciding to go to a tournament. So say an Acercity Games open, or whatever, or a local uh, circuit, your local store is hosting a larger legacy tournament. You need to pick a deck. And I mean, personally, I wouldn't... I mean, this past weekend I actually audibled, quote-unquote, to to Reanimator. Because I thought, well, you know, graveyard-based hate isn't played right now. I can just gank people with turn-one Ionas. It'll be great. I wasn't the best with the deck. The deck itself, the the build wasn't ideal. It was kind of my own brew. Didn't do the greatest. So I think if you know like two months out, pick a deck, start playing it. Learn its intricacies. Learn what the deck is trying to do, what it's weak against, how it fares against other main decks in the format, how you play out those games, what outs are you looking for, what sideboard cards do you need. I think that's pretty important. Jacob?
2: Yeah, and um, I mean, knowing your deck is definitely definitely important um, but also you have to kind of expect what uh, what you may face against um, I mean it's not as if you just crawled under a rock and had the same 75 belcher list and brought it to a tournament um, you know but the metagame may have changed radically since the last time um, you went to a tournament so some things to definitely look for are what are recent results in your local area um, maybe you know a few key players or a few vocal players and they might be on a specific deck let's say um, for instance in Southern California I play a lot with uh, Joe Lawsett and he's very well known for playing a miracle deck so I'm definitely want to prepare something for that type of deck going into a tournament where I may face him, um, and that kinda plays into how you construct your sideboard so Based on that expected metagame, you may want to include, for instance, uh, ways to destroy white creatures for Virtues run, if you anticipate a lot of Maverick and Death and Taxes deck. Um, conversely, you might be playing against me in a tournament, and uh, know that I'm really really big fan of Grizzlebrand, so having ways to hate on the graveyard always important. Um, and uh, just generally keeping up with uh, what kind of trends are happening in Legacy, so looking at the star city um, circuit to see what decks have been placing well um, for instance in the last week we saw three epic storm decks and a pair of death and taxes decks so keeping up on those trends will certainly help you um, either look at what decks to expect and also um, see what people are bringing in against um, your potential deck maybe you'll be able to find a uh, an exploit in the meta game and take advantage of that
1: yeah and you know another tactic. Um, maybe, if you're not as experienced, would be to choose a deck that's a bit of a spoiler deck. In other words, you're hedging. Uh, so, we, we touched on maybe playing an aggressive Bant deck that runs Rest in Peace and eschews some of the graveyard creatures in the hopes of blowing out decks that rely on the graveyard. So, play a spoiler deck and then use your sideboard to hedge against the weaker matchups. Um, you know, that can be another strategy. Uh, where you're going to get a number of free wins depending on what blowout cards you're choosing. And Blood Moon actually is a, uh, a card that's a lot like that. So something like Dragon Stompy, you know, it's kind of a spoiler deck. You may get two or three free wins in a nine-round tournament just off the back of turn one Blood Moon, you know, and then hedge your sideboard against decks where it's not as effective.
0: Also, too, I mean... Picking a deck is not quite as easy as just picking it off the internet. So, for example, I mean, I've seen a lot of players who are like, oh yeah, I want to play Miracles. So they just go to, you know, they watch Joe LaSette stream, you know, they see his deck list, and they copy it, copy a 75-card deck list and run it at a tournament. Now, I mean, obviously Joe's a good player. Joe knows his deck well, or whichever player you're watching or a list that you find. I mean, you might find that that player knows what they're doing. They're a very good player. They're playing in a metagame that they they know they've done their homework. So Joe probably has a sideboard for you know the Southern California area, and a main deck that's very tuned for for his expected matchups that he that he's going to see. You can't necessarily take that and assume that it's going to do well in the metagame that you're going to be in. You might not be in the same one you're you're kind of extrapolating these results in different situations so what you need to be careful of is just going this is a miracle deck and i'm going to play it here when it might not be quite as simple as that you know look at there are there are probably very subtle card choices that make a lot of difference like say running the enlightened tutor version over the asset flash creature spell piers you know one fluster storm special uh, in the tournament that I went to on the weekend, playing that I saw some people playing that version and losing horribly. Whereas a friend of mine, where we had been talking about the Punishing Fires and Enlightened Tutor version together, mm-hmm. that he did really well. He went I think five one one. So I mean, it's just a, there's subtle changes, but you just need to make sure that you're not incorrectly extrapolating uh, deck choices or card selection to another metagame.
2: Right. um, One of the key points that I I usually kind of take note of is when, um, for instance, a sideboard is built at the very last minute in a tournament and uh, in spite of that, the deck ends up doing well. Um, So you'll often see a sideboard that kind of doesn't make sense um, and you'll see like a random one-of. A key example, for instance, is when I played Tin Fins in Vegas back in March. Um, I decided to, that I needed a little bit more bounce in my sideboard, but I didn't have access to a second copy of Echoing Truth, so instead I added the only card I had on me at the time, which was a Hercule's Recall. Well, turns out a, a couple weeks later, I started seeing the same exact 75 card decklist show up without Hercule's Recall on the sideboard, and uh, every time I saw that it uh, gave me a little chuckle, um, knowing that people would take a look at that deck, copy it card for card and not realize what the purpose of that um, card served um, where in reality I just needed an, an extra bounce spell. Um,
1: sometimes I just get new expensive cards and want to play them and that actually steers me towards my deck choice as well. Um, so like if you acquire that fourth moat or that fourth German didgeridoo it may be time to sleeve up those decks. Um, but if you actually want to win, another thing to think about is certain decks depending on the style of play you like can sort of uh, wear on your brain as the as the day you know winds up and down um, so it's
2: typically called mental fatigue huh
1: yeah so you know by the end of the day keep in mind you'll have uh you know been playing this thing for 12 hours or so and um, you better be comfortable making all the decisions it requires uh, maybe at 10 at night while you play out of top eight you know so that's something to think about as well
0: Yeah, so tournament endurance is actually a big part of, you know, winning a tournament. I mean, say if you're traveling from out of town, and you have to drive three hours to the tournament site and then start playing, you know, you're already, I mean, mentally you've got to concentrate on driving, otherwise, you know, you die, and that's not good. So, I mean, showing up to a tournament, say you've driven to the event, and now you've got to write out your deck list and sleeve and make a sideboard, and then suddenly, bam, it's round one, and hey, that's, that's probably not where you want to be. Uh, I know for me, for tournaments that are, say, more than an hour or two drive away, staying the night before at a motel or something like that, spending the 20 bucks is going to be a lot better just in terms of your relaxation before the tournament. Make sure you sleep well, grab a bite to eat, bring snacks, water. It seems really obvious, like, if you would go on a picnic, you'd bring all of these things. You'd do all of these things. If you're going hiking for a day, you'd you do this but it seems like a lot of magic players don't realize that mental fatigue is actually quite important
2: yeah um I can definitely advocate uh bring a bottle of water and um you know a lot. I know a lot of tournament centers or uh even tournament halls um sometimes they have the big water stations and if not um I mean staying hydrated is definitely worth the a couple bucks every couple of rounds um Worst case, you can always fill up at a, a water fountain. And uh, making sure you're hydrated. I mean, even if you're doing absolutely nothing but sitting around, you should be drinking about eight ounces of water per hour. So that certainly will help uh, help you from getting into mental fatigue um, from just dehydration alone.
1: Uh, I can advocate this as well as someone who woke up with an IV bag attached to their arm in a French hospital after having drank seven shots of espresso throughout
0: the day and not a water since eight in the morning like i mean you should be drinking water uh simply eating stuff like vegetables throughout the day as opposed to like a greasy burger oh we're
1: gonna lose all of our listenership
2: (laughs) kids
0: eat your vegetables i think i
2: think they're all dropping like flies at the uh the thought of vegetables right here
0: However, like, bringing something, I mean, for the nutritionists out there or whatever, it's all about, like, you know, soluble fibers and, like, keeping yourself full and, like, I mean, these are kind of things that are maybe a little bit, maybe some listeners will think we're thinking about this too much. But it's not just, you're not just playing cards. It's also, who is, who's the last person standing who, you know, hasn't fallen over from hunger?
2: You heard here here first, folks. You gotta stay regular at a tournament.
1: Yeah, well the problem is, is then you're regular and you go to the bathroom at the Average Star City and it looks like a, a fucking, looks like the thing, you know, something out of a fucking
0: horror flick. If you eat carrots and suddenly you're <laughs> like, shitting everywhere, <laughs> you've got a problem. Like,
2: anyway, endurance is important. Um. Another thing to consider in terms of uh, tournament endurance is... Given a choice, um, for instance, let's say you're two months out and uh, you are preparing for large Star City event coming into your city, um, is picking a deck that may uh, benefit you if you intend to go long. Um, so, for instance, you wouldn't want to pick a very complicated uh, control deck uh, that you don't have intimate knowledge with because you may be going to time every single round uh, based on all those decisions and in a long tournament those uh decisions will impact your mental fatigue at the end of the day.
0: So I mean I know from experience that like playing say something like 43 lands or bug control like those decks are very complicated to play they're very I mean you're taking up the entire round it's just the nature of the deck whereas playing something like I mean, even Reanimator. I mean, I know what I need to do. I my Ona or Brand and then I reanimate it, and then I counter their spell, hopefully. That's all you're doing. I mean, obviously, anybody's going to argue that there's more decisions, and it's true, there are. However, it's not like a mid-range game plan where you're like, okay, I have a hand of, like, a Dark Confidant and a this, and I have to make decisions. Do I save this? Do I attack? Do I block? What's going on here? A combo deck, or a simpler combo deck, depending on, obviously, what we're talking about, a simpler deck to kind of think out over the course of, say, 12 hours is definitely going to benefit you.
2: Yeah, it's definitely no surprise that uh, Mono Red uh, Beatdown won the standard portion of uh, the uh, the Star City event uh, in Baltimore.
1: That deck looks like something out of freaking the old starter product. I mean, what the fuck? Like, if that's the pinnacle of standard technology, who the, why would you ever play with
2: Well, it has 22 mountains! (laughs) Come on! You can't get much more of a simpler mana base than that. Uh, White-bordered mountain. (laughs) They should just run 22 revised mountains. A deck only Joe Lissette would be proud of.
0: I don't know how Joe keeps up with... um, I mean, obviously on the computer it's a little bit different. Uh, You know, you can get up, you can go to the bathroom. You know, Magic Online is different than regular Magic. However... Still playing Miracles for like, you know, a 10 round tournament, 9 round tournament, oof. That's rough.
2: It, it's definitely a challenge and it really shows the strength of the player's skill um, and fortitude really, uh, playing such a deck deep into, uh, for instance, a Grand Prix tournament. And uh, of course all these tips definitely apply to a Grand Prix as well. Um, I, I would actually argue that a Grand Prix is much more difficult in that uh, not only is it equally long as a star city event but it's also a multi-day tournament yeah and so you have to essentially replicate that same success from day one in day two and that's really where you that's really where you see a lot of p- players break down um playing one day of magic I- is usually fine playing multiple days of magic is at that same skill level and um the amount of decisions and and really just the, the seriousness that comes from that type of tournament um is really, really difficult to, to pull off.
1: It's going to make Eternal Weekend very interesting. You know, anyone who goes really long in the legacy portion, um, having to get up and play in a long vintage tournament the next day,
2: a challenge. You know. So um, that, that concludes our uh, episode for uh, Everyday Eternal. You can uh, reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash everydayeternalpodcasts. Um, You can also reach us uh, on email, everydayeternalpodcast at gmail.com and on Twitter at EternalMTG. Thanks for listening.